Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Well, this Sabbath is up off to a great start. I mean, what other church can boast that we have Jesus himself baptizing in the baptistry? (laughs) Nowhere else. I'd invite you, before we delve into scripture, to just bow your heads with me for prayer. Father, we come to you desperately asking that you may do something new in us and through us. For we pray in your name. Amen. Well, the poet wasn't as recognized as his contemporaries. Names like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. But he was every bit as influential. After all, it was him that crafted a new way of doing poetry, one in which you used words to create mental images, leaving the interpretation up to you and me. Now think about his most famous work as a prime example, a pithy poem entitled, the red wheelbarrow. And it reads something like this. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed over with rainwater besides the white chickens. That's it. That's the whole poem. And if you are like me, you're probably asking several questions. Some of you are wondering why the poem doesn't rhyme. Others are asking questions of form and function. Where's the meter? What's the metric structure? Some of us are even asking some more basic questions. Questions like the one my mother asked of me when I attempted to tell her my first joke. So here I am at five years old, I look at her and I say, Mom, why did the chicken cross the road? And she said, who let out the chickens? (laughs) And that's perhaps what you're wondering. What are all these chickens doing wandering about out of the coop? Why leave a red wheelbarrow out? And why allow it to get wet? Won't it rust? And why does so much depend upon this tool? So the professors and writers and the poetry aficionados will tell you 
They'll tell you that William Carlos Williams is attempting to elicit images that are steeped in Americana. They'll say that the wheelbarrow is a symbol for the construction and the growth of civilization, and that the chickens represent, well, the farmlands that dot our heartland, these farmlands that now must bow down to the powers of progress. The reality, though, is that in the hands of a lesser poet, those words simply become a mishmash of awkward language. Now, to be sure, William Carlos Williams knew quite a bit about awkwardness. Now, the year was 1948. And the poet who used to moonlight as a physician had a heart attack. And several strokes followed. And so feeling himself at death's door, he decided to relieve his soul, not by calling a priest or a pastor, but by inviting his wife into the room. The poet was a notorious Lothario and a womanizer. And at that moment, feeling himself on the brink, decides to confess to confess to every affair, to every instance in which he had done his wife wrong, to every moment in which he had failed his marital vows. And then when he was done, oh, when he was done, he proceeded to live another 14 years. <laughs> now, I don't want you to think that the moral of the story is call a pastor before you call your wife. But the truth of the matter is, can you imagine Thanksgiving the following year? I mean, can you picture Christmas and every family reunion that followed after that? There's one word that comes to my mind. Awkward. Really, really awkward. After all, you and I know quite a bit about awkwardness, don't we? I mean, here you are, you come to church, you try to smile, then you move in, somebody says happy Sabbath, you dart to your pew, you sit there, you open your Bible, you begin to meander aimlessly trying to read, hoping that no pastor in a strange haircut will come and shake your hand, and then your anxiety is relieved when you hear chemo begin to play the first notes in the organ because you know that for the next hour to hour and a half, depending on who preaches, yeah, <laughs> nobody will engage you. I mean, you don't know the difference between an introit and an anthem and a doxology, but you are thrilled that you won't have to answer any questions. And then you hear the words. You hear those words that have been our clarion call during this sermon series. The words that we find in the book of Acts, the second chapter, verses 42 through 47. I want to linger for just a moment on the last two verses of that passage. Listen to what Luke writes. 
He says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let me say that again for clarity's sake. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I had a dream. It was the dream that the Loma Linda University Church could be a community of growth. And we don't grow. We don't grow because we want to show that we are the best show in town, that we have the best musicians, that we have the clearest and most concise speakers. We want to grow because we believe that God is using us in this community to bring transformation to people's lives. And the beauty of this story is that this miracle, you know, the miracle of the early church is preceded yet by another miracle, one that you can find in the second chapter of the book of Acts, verses 6 through 8. And let me tell you what's going on in those lines. Peter is preaching. He's preaching to a conclave of people, people who have come from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And then something happens. Something incredible occurs. The people begin to listen to their message in their own tongue. You know, the miracle of the church, the existence of us here and now, is first and foremost the miracle of Pentecost worship. And that miracle is one of intimacy. Think about it. Here you are, coming from the far reaches of the empire, and then you hear it, the message in your own language, that mother tongue that you learned as a tyke on your parents' knee. And something wonderful happens when you hear the language in your own tongue. We cease to be strangers, and we begin to belong to one another. Awkwardness then is ultimately replaced with the deepest intimacy. The miracle of Pentecost is a miracle of intimacy. So who drives this? Well, I think it's the Spirit. And the saddest reality is that so often our worship services seek to homogenize. We say we belong to a traditional liturgy. We believe that the doxology always ought to begin with praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then some of us retort, no, we prefer a more contemporary, a more modern take on the message. Well, here at the Loma Linda University Church, we believe, we firmly believe that worship is not a style. Worship is an experience. 
Worship is the experience of giving yourself over as a congregation to the spirit that is always busy at work in the art of translation. So it must have been my first church. A praise band had come, and for some reason, well, for some reason that still escapes me, I that morning allowed Gloria Estefan to inhabit my bones. <laughs> because on that day, whether you liked it or not, the rhythm was going to get me. And so, as only an Adventist can, I begin to sway softly and slowly from side to side. And then, for reasons that still escape me, church, I lifted one hand up to the sky. And then I felt it. You know what I felt. It was the touch from my neighbor sitting right next to me in the pew, desperately trying to lower my hand. So up my hand went, and the neighbor pushed it down, and I can't tell you what the rest of the worship set was because I was firmly entrenched in this hand-to-hand -hand combat. <laughs> but worship isn't a style. It's an experience. An experience that occurs when we let the Spirit of God loose. And church, let me tell you this. When you let the Spirit of God loose, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Let me say that again. When you let the Spirit loose, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Annie Dillard, Annie Dillard, an American writer, in her book, Teaching Stones How to Talk, reflects upon this sentiment when she says, I don't understand why people at churches look like tourists. Tourists on this prepackaged tour of the absolute. I mean, do they really understand? Do they get it? Do they understand the power that they are so blithely invoking? It's madness. Madness to wear ladies' hats and velvet hats in our worship services. The deaconess and deaconesses should probably hand out crash helmets instead. They should equip the pews with life preservers and flares and force you to latch yourself into your pew. Because when the spirit is at work, it's going to move you beyond what you're comfortable. So, how far, you might ask? How far do we go? Well, I find it interesting. As Brian McBrien quotes in his book, The Strategically Small Church, that the early believers, those 3,000 that were part of the miracle of intimacy, they didn't stay in Jerusalem. I mean, they didn't get together and say, here we are, the 3,000 founding members of the new chart, the first Pentecostal church of Jerusalem. No, instead, instead, they went out. You know, they went out 
back to every corner of the Mediterranean world. And years later, years later, seven home churches, seven minuscule churches in Asia Minor receive a letter. And the letter comes from their pastor, their prophet, a man stranded on an island known as Patmos. They begin to read the letter, and when they get to the fourth chapter, they witness the most powerful worship scene in the whole New Testament. Can I invite you to go with me to Revelation chapter 4? Notice how the vision begins in verse 1. John says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. When I was small, well, when I was small, I used to think that there was this unbridgeable chasm. I mean, I didn't use the word chasm. I just said it's really far away. But nonetheless, there was this chasm between us and heaven. And here in Revelation chapter 4, John is getting this backseat pass, this backstage invitation to see how the world really is. And it starts with an open door. Because in order to have intimacy, you need to first have access. And can you imagine that type of access? If to have intimacy, you must have access, then to, can you imagine the kind of access that God is giving John? Maybe the notion still escapes you. So let me tell you a story that might illustrate it. After Lincoln was assassinated and his successor was impeached, America during the Reconstruction period had moved its conflicts over to Congress. Uh, our legislative branch didn't want, or they didn't have the stomach, I should say, for a powerful executive. And so year after year, they began to slash the budget of the presidency. Things got so bad that during the presidency of Grover Cleveland, if you were to stroll around 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and ring the doorbell, the president himself would have to come down from his desk and open the door. And can you imagine that scene? You're knocking and there he is. Well, this is what's happening. This is what's happening in Revelation 4. The God of intimacy, the God whom we worship, is giving John full and complete access. And what, is God, what does John see? Well, the first thing he sees is four creatures. And he gives us a description of these characters, and the description is as follows. One of them has the face of a human, the other one the face of an ox, the other one the face of a lion, and finally, you have one that looks like a bird. So here's what's going on. John is being, being invited to participate in a cosmic liturgy where all of creation is worshiping God. The human-faced creature represents us. The ox, well, the ox is the king of the domesticated animals. The lion, ferocious, prime among the wild beasts. And the bird, well, the bird is first among all. 
the creatures that fly. And so what is going on is that the whole of creation is worshiping the Creator. It reminds us of those words that the psalmist pens all the way back in Psalm 150. Let everything, he says, that breathes, praise the Lord. But that's not all that's going on. Oh, no. John sees further out into the throne room, and there they are, sitting on thrones, 24 elders. And the implication of that is that those elders are both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. In other words, the whole body of believers. Now listen to what is being sung and in heaven. First, creation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then the church responds to that clarion call of creation by saying, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they will be created and have their being. So what is the difference in the song that creation lifts up and the song that you and I as worshipers are called to sing. Well, if you've noticed carefully, creation is giving thanks to God as the creator. They are recognizing these differences that exist between creature and creator. But the church, the church is not only called, we're not only called to affirm God's holy otherness, we are also called to say we are worshiping because God has done something. God has done something. God has done something in your life. You know how I know that God has done something in your life? Because you're here. And you're here today because at some point, at some moment, God said, I want you. I want you. No one else will do. I need you. What I love about that approach to worship is that it recognizes what you and I already know. God reigns. God reigns. Let the church say amen to the reality that God reigns. No matter what you have done with your life, no matter what fantasies you have believed in that now are determining your destiny, God still is God. And the idols that we have in our heart, those idols that we grasp on so tightly, well, those aren't God. So you and I, because God has done something in our lives, we have a responsibility, and that responsibility is we are called to witness by providing an answer to the whys of the world. So let me break that down for you a little bit. The world has a bunch of whys. Why is there pain? 
As Pastor Philip said this morning, why is there famine, earthquakes, persecution? Why is there so much anguish? And the church stands up and says, let me provide an answer to those whys. The answer is Christ and Christ crucified. But the scene doesn't end there. Worship continues. And worship continues because there's a problem in heaven. There's a scroll, and the scroll is closed. Revelation 5 says that nobody is worthy to open the scroll, and if you're reading this 2,000 years ago, those words would have meant a lot. You see, when a Roman emperor would ascend to the throne, he would have in his hand a scroll. And in that scroll, it was said that all the petitions, all the requests, all the desires of his people were written there. And because the emperor was magnanimous, he promised to fulfill every need that his subjects had. And then John says, who is worthy? And answers his own question by saying that nobody on earth was worthy to open the scroll. And John weeps. John weeps because his petitions, his requests, the destiny that God desires for the world, well... It remains unfulfilled, worthy. When a Roman emperor would enter the city, people would line the streets clamoring, Caesar is worthy. And yet here, here in this backstage pass that is opening our eyes to what worship ought to be, we hear that even Rome in all its military might isn't worthy, that they have ultimately failed in their task at providing the peace that our hearts so crave. And so John weeps bitterly. And then he hears it. And he is startled. He hears a ferocious roar behind him. And he turns. And he turns fearful because he is expecting to see a lion ready to pounce. And instead, instead he sees a lamb. The church is called through its worship to hear the lion even as we keep our eyes on the lamb. So my question is, in our songs and prayers, do we elevate the majesty and the power, the might that the lion of the tribe of Judah has? And through our preaching and the way do we, that we treat each other, are we reflecting the gentle and the gentle lamb The lion, the lion reveals the lamb even as the lamb remains a lion. And John, John falls to his knees and begins to worship because that lion that roars has attained a victory through blood. Revelation chapter 5 says that it is through that lion that we have been ransomed because the lamb's build 
its blood. This idea of ransom might not mean that much to you today. But again, if you're part of John's original audience, you would have understood it. In the Roman world, prisoners of war could be ransomed. You would have to, of course, pay an exorbitant amount of money. But when you did, the prisoner would return home And the invitation to those that surrounded him was that they would continue to act as if the prisoner never left. Now, said person, once he had been or she had been ransomed, had absolutely no responsibility to pay back that money. The only requirement was this, that they remembered the patron that had set them free. I rejoice at the prospect of worship because church Sabbath after Sabbath, we get a chance to remember the one who set us free. And here's the beautiful part about it, friends. The way in which we worship is contingent on the way that we understand our patron. If you see your God as demanding, unflinching, requiring your full and complete obedience, then your worship will reflect that. But if you understand that the lion-like lamb desires nothing but you, he wants nothing but a connection, he wants to bulldoze the awkwardness in order to gift you empathy, your worship services will reflect that. Well, the year, the year was 1996. The location was Atlanta. And the U.S. women's gymnastics team had not won a gold medal in years. That discipline had been dominated by the Russians. And there they stood, neck to neck. The last apparatus was the vault. And the strongest gymnast that we had in that particular exercise was a girl, Carrie Strug. The problem was that Carrie had just broken her ankle. And so tears in her eyes, she looked at a coach, a hard man, an uncompromising man. She said to Bella Caroli, I can't do it. Bella responded, yes, you can. She said, it hurts too much. And Bella said, you'll do it anyway. So she approached the runway, limped as best she could, raced towards the vault, hit the vault, stuck the landing, the U.S. won the gold. 
What the Wheaties commercial won't tell you is that after that, Carrie had to retire. The damage that her ankle had sustained was so great that she would never practice gymnastics again. So fast forward six Olympic cycles. The U.S. now is firmly entrenched as the world power when it comes to women's gymnastics. They go to Tokyo with an assurance that they will indeed win the gold, for after all, the most decorated gymnast of all time is on her team. And again, the vault. Simone Biles has won countless gold medals and has etched her name with countless world records on that apparatus. Only that day, something's off. Usually she can keep these doubt, these voices of doubt at bay, but today, today she can't do it. And so on the fly, she decides she's not going to do this difficult jump. She will only attempt two and a half twists. And she approaches the runway, hits that vault at maximum speed, and then panic overtakes her body. She doesn't know where she is in the air. She's lost all perception with the floor. And in a feat of true athletic ability, she manages to land one and a half jumps and hobble to the floor. She's rewarded with the lowest score of the American delegation on that event. She just doesn't have it. And she knows that if she continues to compete, she is jeopardizing not only her team's chances at a medal, but her own health. And so again, tears in her eyes, she looks at the coach and says, I can't do it. A different name roams the sidelines and calmly responds, that's okay, Simone. You are more important than a medal. The world the world has defined one as a champion and the other one as somebody that cracked under pressure. But history will remember the exploits of both women because of the relationship they had with their coach. Maybe you've come to church today to worship and you're hobbled, and you say, God, I can't do it. There's this sin that I can't get rid of, this ache in my heart that I can't control, this issue that I cannot defeat, and you feel embarrassed. You feel awkward. You sink in that pew and you say, I can't do it, and your coach says, that's okay, Marina. You're more important than a medal. Funny, huh? 
Funny that New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson says that it is the church and not the world, the one that needs to be reminded of the miraculous power of the Spirit. And I've seen, I've seen the Spirit work this week. In spite of messages delivered through broken vessels, I've seen the Spirit work this week. I've seen it work as one of our church members, one of you sitting in those pews, decided to invite people with whom she had nothing in common with and said, won't we break bread together? Funny that she says that after that meal, she realized that we're not that different after all, that we speak the same language. Oh, I've seen the Spirit work throughout this week. I've seen it as you gave a whatchamacallit to someone you love. And they asked, what is this candy for? And you say, God's gonna do something amazing in your life. I've seen it. Oh, I've seen that spirit work. As God gave you a name, a name for you to write, on a post-it note. I've seen it as you went and you said, here are my aspirations, this scroll that only you can open. Oh, I've seen the Spirit work. I've seen it work throughout our prayer line this week. I've seen it work when the Spirit touched your heart and your life, not because of the preacher's oratory, not because of the power of the prayer, I've seen it work because at the end of that prayer session, we unmuted our mics and there was chaos that ensued, a bumpy ride driven by the Spirit. And it drove you to tears. I've seen the Spirit work. As you came in today, you received you received a little card like this. Now, throughout this sermon series, we've invited you to participate in a challenge. Today, I don't have a challenge for you. I've got a commitment. I'd ask you to dedicate your life now to those simple practices, prayer, service, study, and the breaking of bread. If you want to see worship in that way, if you recognize that worship isn't a style, it's an experience, I want you to write your name on that card. Take it home with you. Place it on your fridge. Put it in your Bible and recognize that God is doing something new in our midst. Won't you pray with me? Lord, linger in our presence. We want you to stay here. Holy One of Israel, inundate our hearts. Spirit that held the church together, hold our lives together. Give us courage, Lord, so that we may replace awkwardness for intimacy, so that we may praise you, so that we may know 
who you are. For we have already been known by you. Linger with us, Lord, for we pray in your name. And the people of God said, Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.